0: Hello, this is Nikki Tudge with PPG, and it's Friday, it's three o'clock, so that means it's chat, chuckle, and have some fun time. And as usual, I am here with my colleague and fellow host and friend, (laughs) Judy Luther. Hello, Judy. Hello.
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) So who do we have today? We have a couple of delightful ladies from Atlas Assistance Dogs, and they are a very proud corporate sponsor of the Pet Professional Guild. Their mission is, and I'm quoting off their website because I love this, Atlas fundamentally expands access to assistance dogs. We support people with disabilities to train and certify their own service dogs using positive ethical training methods. At Atlas, we believe anyone who would benefit from a qualified assistance dog should be able to have one. Yo, how often do we hear that people just can't get access to the right dogs and or they can't afford it? And before I introduce these two lovely ladies to you, I also just want to just give a little bit of information from their website, just so that you understand where Atlas Assistance Dogs are different. Because it says we are the only organization that A, works with all breeds of dogs, yay, Mm -hmm. certifies qualified privately owned dogs. And I think that's been, there's been quite a lot of discussion actually in our PPG British Isles group, because there's been some problems in the UK with the legalities of individuals who want to work with their own service dogs, and for some reason there are um, barriers being put in place. I don't know any more about that, so I'm not really qualified to speak about it, but I think um, our members will be really pleased to see that. Um, It also stipulates that they're not limited to a specific group of people or people with a specific disability. They're not limited to one geographic region. They do require that everybody uses the least invasive scientifically and ethically sound training and expands available training and certification resources. So if anybody, while they're listening to us, wants to cruise across the Atlas Assistance Dogs website, mm-hmm. it is atlasdog.org. That is A-T-L-A-S-D-O-G, singular, mm-hmm. dot org. So with that lengthy introduction, let me introduce mm-hmm. to you Molly and Jennifer. Hello, ladies. Welcome to the PPG Chat and
2: Chuckle. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us.
0: You're very welcome. So, just so everybody knows where we all are, I'm in sunny Florida, not so much. It's raining right now. I would imagine that it's a very similar sky here to what Molly's experiencing in Portland, Oregon, because it <laughs> <Portland laughs> tends to be actually Seattle's like that as well, isn't it, Jennifer? Often,
3: awesome, but it's actually really yeah. sunny. Today.
0: Wonderful. And Judy is um, probably drinking a Mai Tai sitting by the side of a beautiful lake there. I don't know where I
1: wish. Going. I wish. No, I'm in Missouri and it is 96 here. So, we have your weather, Nikki.
0: You know, I spoke to Don Hansen, who's one of our board members and the PPG steering committee member this morning. I spoke to him at seven o'clock this morning, AM, and he's up in Maine. And he told me they are going to mm-hmm. have temperatures of 85 today in Maine. Yeah. But there's no such thing as global Crazy. warming, is there? Crazy.
1: Nope, not at all. <laughs> not
0: happening. Yeah. All righty. All right. So, ladies, first of all, let me ask you a couple of questions. How, how did you first get
3: involved in PPG? What made you want to sponsor PPG and become a corporate partner? So um, one of the reasons was the kind of the opportunities for our outreach and networking much like this right. um, and some of the other benefits and really recognizing that um, the organization has the same values as us, right. that it's very important to us mm-hmm. to only collaborate with and associate with um, right, and partner with organizations that only promote positive and ethical training and working with people and animals. Right. And okay. so it's an organization we can get behind and we feel that the benefits from being a corporate sponsor like we are, are right. phenomenal.
0: Right, and I think as well, from, as a, from a corporate sponsor perspective, given the network that we have access to, you're not gonna be having battles in terms of philosophy because obviously PPG mm-hmm. members already feel the same way that you guys feel about, about training. Yeah.
3: Right, Perfect. and so that's a nice, it's um, kind of a nice pre-vetting of yeah. knowing there's some conversations mm-hmm. we don't need to have.
0: Yeah, perfect, okay. Lovely. So, how did the company get started? I mean, what? Why did you guys decide that you wanted to? This is something you wanted to really focus on, and that you didn't just want to focus on making the training accessible, but that you wanted to sort of specialize in this area. Because this is pretty much your key key drive, isn't it? Certifying trainer programs and certification for helping people have better access to that sort of knowledge and skills.
3: Right. Yeah, it's all about different ways we can break down barriers, and we've been adding and finally building out some of the programs over time that we had planned from day one. In terms of how we got started, um, it's been six years now, which is kind of amazing. Um, there were a number of us who were It was co-founded by myself and my father and another father-daughter team. And at the time, the other father-daughter team and I had... Um, been running a for-profit service dog training business that we had started. And prior to that, we're part of a nonprofit foundation working with service dogs. And in both cases, in working with that foundation, that that's a very traditional model of breeding dogs and placing them. Um, we found that there, there were so many people who needed help who couldn't be served. And that was part of why we started the for-profit. But then there we found, well, there's so many people who need help that can't afford this. Right. And we were less and less happy with the methods of the original nonprofit we were working with, both in terms of how they treated the people and the animals, and really wanted um, to have something that we fully could control, methodologies, and really bring access to quality service dog training, and really democratize that access. Yeah, yeah. We, one of the things that's been really important to us from the beginning is to achieve accreditation with Assistance Dog International which is the closest thing there is to a standard in the U.S. And there are very few owner-based programs that are part of that. And so we've, from the beginning, been developing our programs um, with the requirements in mind so that we can bring access to that kind of certification right. to the individual who otherwise wouldn't have access.
0: Right. So when we, talk about, when we talk about service dogs, I know in the U.S. there's three categories of assistance animals, which is why the PPP division is assistance animals. Do you work across all three of those categories or just in one
2: particular one? So we don't work with guide dogs, um, but we do work with all other types of um, service dogs. So we um, work with mobility, um, hearing alerts. So, yeah, oftentimes you'll hear kind of hearing alert guide and other types of service. So um, guide dogs are the only types of um, assistance dogs that we don't work with, uh, that we can work with clients who have some um, visual difficulties, but um, not full guide dog training since that's such a specialty on its own. Okay,
0: got it. Why why is it that it's, um, I mean, this might be a completely inept question, but it, it, it seems that owners who want to train their own service dogs it seems like that is really difficult for owners because either historically it wasn't traditionally done or because there aren't trainers that are actually providing that service Mm. is that accurate is it always been difficult for
3: yeah it's difficult for a number of reasons one is difficult in that a lot of the foundations older foundations have had the sense the attitude that well only our certified trainers could possibly train a service dog and that someone with a disability couldn't possibly train a dog for themselves. So there's that initial bias. Right. People with disabilities can't do for themselves. And then there's the reality that it is very hard. Yeah. That you're working within your own disability and what you might be experiencing day-to-day to train your dog. And we all know that training a dog to have reliable behaviors is hard anyway or time consuming and involved anyway. So add that into what might be a day where you already have limited energy, or it's very challenging for you to move in certain ways, um, or you have health challenges that make that harder. Um, And so I think there's both the perception, and then there's the reality. And then there's also being willing to recognize if this really isn't what's best for your dog. Um, It's very hard if somebody has a dog that, and it's pretty common actually, that someone will have a dog who's their pet that starts alerting them to some medical condition, just sort of naturally. Mm -hmm. And then they want to refine that, they want to work with that, and they want to make them their service dog, but that the dog is completely unsuitable to be in public, that they're terrified Mm -hmm. um, when they're out in public or they may be reactive to other dogs or reactive to other people. And so it's just not fair to that dog, but that's a very hard thing as an individual owner when it's right. like, hey, my dog is doing the service for me, and they don't necessarily know how to read their dog, and they don't necessarily recognize that lack of behavior doesn't mean the dog is happy. It means they're shut down. Right. Um, it's, yeah.
0: it's interesting you say that, because I remember when I very first started dog training uh, full time back in 2006 or seven, I bumped into a lady who, who lived in the Florida panhandle who had a chihuahua that was actually a seizure alert dog. And when I first met her, she spent a long time and it was, and the sort of service dog world was something that I didn't know very much about, wasn't involved in it. And some of the stories she told me about the difficulties that she had with her dog, because it wasn't a typical retriever or Labrador. And and that was when I first started to sort of learn about the different categories of dogs. Um, But even to this day, there's still so much misunderstanding, isn't there, between the three—the service dogs, the emotional support dogs, and the therapy animals—and then what role they play in people's lives. That I always found as a dog trainer that you would have numerous pet owners calling you saying, "I want my dog to be an emotional support animal. Or, I want my dog to be a service animal so I can take them on a plane," or mm-hmm. but they didn't right. have really any understanding as to how emotionally as sta- I use stable, which probably isn't the right word, but exactly what you're saying, that some dogs are great at fulfilling those sort of rote tasks about turning lights on and fetching and retrieving, but they're not the type of personality that is comfortable being out and about. And I'm going to make a statistic here, which is purely anecdotal and it's going to horrify people, but, and Judy, I don't know how you feel, but I would say that the majority of service dogs that I see out and about look bloody
1: miserable. They do. They just look miserable. And then you look closer and you can see why. They're either, you can can tell that they've been trained using aversive methods or they're frightened where they are. And I I see a lot of times where the person isn't supporting emotionally, emotionally supporting the dog in scary situations. Um, But what I've seen, and I think Jennifer, when we talked a little bit, you guys really focus on that. And you help people understand the importance of not only them getting the benefit of the dog but the dog benefiting from them supporting the dog
3: right and it's an area that yeah we have to be careful as dog trainers right the as as positive reinforcement trainers kind of that old adage that there's nothing as aversive as a positive reinforcement trainer <laughs> that the owner trainer community has a lot of um I'm trying to think of kind of angst or frustration with the positive dog training community. They feel very unheard. They feel very disrespected. Um, It's a very, they feel like, you know, we're a very ableist group that says, well, you know, you just shouldn't use this prong collar. You shouldn't do this without a regard for why they might be doing that and meeting them and recognizing Mm -hmm. they may be scared that the dog is going to pull them over. They may have a very legitimate fear, and they're doing this because they're concerned about their health. And we need to meet them where they're at and acknowledge their very real concerns and then give them tools Mm
2: -hmm.
3: that they can use instead. But if we just meet them with contempt and don't acknowledge that this is a very real thing for them, and it's a very challenging thing for them possibly to use some of our traditional tools, they may not be able to clip a clip on a harness that may not be possible for them that you know kind of recognizing why sometimes people use these tools and then helping look for alternatives and yeah. helping
0: yeah.
3: you know shift that but it's something yeah. that i really see in a lot of the owner trainer communities that there's this huge resistance to positive reinforcement and well, i really think it's a lot of how we approach them and so and that's it's something interesting,
2: not, um, i've I, i've seen even i've seen even within owner trainer um, like positive only owner trainer Facebook groups that same type of um clash and that same type of like similar to what positive dog trainers might yeah you know do even within owner trainers um who are purely focused on positive right
0: I mean we have to to give the owner the same emotional support and feeling of safety that Mm -hmm. we're we're sort of advocating for the dogs don't we we have to recognize that the handler's got to feel safe and listened to and got to feel emotionally secure while they're I, out and about doing, you know, living their life.
1: Well, and I tell all my clients, if I don't like a tool that you're using, I'm going to find some way. To, I'm not going to have you just thrown out there you yeah. know, without help. Yeah. If I can't replace it with something else, then I'm the one that's failing at that point. Right. So, you know, you have an electric collar. I'm going to show you how to get off of that. I'm not just going to say, dump it. We yeah. have to help them along that path. And we wanna say dump it, but we have to, we can't. We have to help them through the process or they're gone.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about, what. what's the one thing that you do right now? What program or certification that you're most proud of? And, and then let's spend a couple of minutes talking about that.
3: So we have two kind of pillar programs. Right. Um, one is our Trainer Academy. Mm-hmm which um, is for professional trainers or experienced trainers who want to be able to sort of answer yes when someone says, can you train my service dog? And it gives them all the foundations they need of how to work with dogs, how to work with people, and then all of the understanding of disability task mitigation, the laws, how to help people self-advocate, how to navigate in the world. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very extensive program. We're very proud of that program. It's an important revenue source for our organization that allows us to charge very little to our clients. And it's also part of our trying to get more skilled ethical trainers out there in the world to be available to work with clients. Um, So that's one core pillar of our organization. And then we leverage that program in different aspects of it for our client certification program. Mm -hmm. Our clients take some of those courses. Our volunteer team facilitators who we train who work with our clients Mm -hmm. get access to a chunk of those courses. And that's, I think, a really unique thing in our model is that um, to keep our costs low for clients, but to still provide quality private and group training right. for six or more months, what we do is we train volunteers. They may many are professional dog trainers. Some are just people that are people that are experienced pet dog owners, um, but maybe really have great experience working with people. We find nurses, educators, social workers, therapists make phenomenal. Um, team facilitators working with our clients. Some are service dog
2: handlers as well. And service
3: dog handlers too, recognizing that um, once someone's gone through our program, they may want to give back. They may be excited about it. We've had people go through our program and fall so much in love with dog training that they've then gone on to become dog trainers. Is,
0: is there an eligibility requirement for that program? So is it is it just designed for dog training professionals that are going to then help and support individuals in training their own service dog? Or could somebody that has a disability and is looking for their dog, could, would, it, would they benefit? Would they be eligible to join that program?
3: So the better program for those people would be our Team Set emotion Motion program, okay. which is an online program geared for, it could be for the pet dog owner, it could be for a future service dog um, client, a future emotional support dog, Um, owner or future therapy dog owner. That's really our foundation program that we developed so that we didn't have to say no to people when their dog wasn't old enough, they didn't meet our program qualifications or we weren't in their area. And so that's a phenomenal place to get started.
0: Yeah, I'm looking Um, at it on the website right now, actually. It looks really good. Um, So I'm just going to reiterate the name just in case anyone missed it. The name of the program is Team Set in Motion. And it was originally created for people with disabilities who either couldn't afford a private trainer or couldn't find one near them or didn't want to wait for years to be placed with an already trained service dog. So I think, and to be honest with you, I think those two criteria, they're the two that I used to hear so much of when clients reached out to me that it was either way too expensive for them to be able to afford a fully trained dog or... There was nobody in the area because even as a dog trainer i was always very cautious i mean i would always ask client or advise clients if you do the cgc Good citizen that's the first step to sort of the delta and then after that you can move on to other things but it's a good place to start but a lot of trainers are not comfortable because they don't necessarily have the skills to understand because there's a lot of modifiers required isn't there i mean it's, mm-hmm. you're working with somebody in a wheelchair for example teaching a dog a fetch behavior or a turn a light on or something that they often need to be modified because of the handler's abilities. And I think a lot of dog trainers probably feel a little bit out of their depth with that. So the fact that you have that program for the trainers and for individuals is fabulous.
3: And we're actually opening up part of our trainer Academy. We're going to be releasing some of the modules of standalone that could help individual clients. So for example, our module on service dog selection, Mm -hmm. we're going to be bundling with the module on dog body language and releasing those in standalone.
0: You should look at doing one of those as a webinar for PPG because it might Mm -hmm. be a really easy way for people to sort of immerse themselves into the education, knowing that if they enjoy it and they like the format that they can then move on to doing the entire program
3: that's I a great idea. We'd love it's to do quite that. A
0: nice tool. Yeah. Cause I know a lot of people are there, you know, I mean, honestly, when I, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, I thought for a while, you know, wouldn't it be great to just start, uh, not to have to deal with pet owners necessarily, but just to work with <laughs> dogs and just help create and help train the dogs. And then when you start thinking about it, it's massive task, absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. And it has a huge level of responsibility with it. Doesn't it? When you are providing dogs that are going to be tools and emotional support systems for someone with a disability. It's a huge responsibility. It, it does.
3: And that's actually, a for us, a fairly recent pilot program that we've launched, um, our assistance dogs at Emotion. And we have funding, and we have two puppies going through this, both chocolate labs. And that program, and those are funded um, by some grants to have these two dogs go to veterans. And in that program, we raise the puppies the first year of their life. And then transition in the client and then transition them into our regular client certification program. Right. Recognizing that some people could be successful starting with an adolescent, but couldn't be successful starting with a puppy. And so yes, it's this sort of great stress of watching how is the dog? How are they doing? Is this suitable for them? With at all our best attempts at picking a dog, and then you know, the hopes of that person waiting for that dog. Right.
0: Are service dogs, assistance dogs, are they eligible um for health insurance? I mean, do other people have to actually find the money to purchase a trained dog?
2: Unfortunately, they are not eligible for health insurance. I mean that just blows
0: um, me that just absolutely blows me away. I mean it's it's, just,
2: it's ridiculous. Yeah.
0: I mean I mean just, you don't even know what to say to that. I mean, it's just unbelievable, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah and something that I know that um, I'm hoping is some of the studies have come out. I know the VA has done some studies that show how people have been able to get off medication, off other treatments because of their service dogs and how that service dogs actually yeah. save money and save lives. Yeah. That hopefully that's something over time that insurance will change. But yeah, right now there's absolutely no coverage.
2: Um, I will say, though, that um, cost, they're tax deductible. So if you have a service dog, any, um, any of the costs that you've paid towards your right. dog, medical right. care, right. treats, anything like that,
0: yeah. tax
3: deductible. Yeah, as a medical expense.
0: Let me put you on the spot for a minute, and I won't hold you to this. And if you don't know the answer, you feel quite comfortable to tell me to go away. Um, mm-hmm. if, if I had a disability now, let's say I had an accident, and I wanted to buy to purchase a dog that was fully trained, what sort of money are we talking about if I wanted to get a golden retriever that could assist me with, um, I don't even know what category I would, just with mobility, you know. Sure. Yeah.
3: You're going to see anything from $10,000, to $30,000.
0: Yeah. I mean, how many people can afford that? I mean, that is the fact that there's no can't. help for that.
1: Exactly. And then there's That's, the wait list, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And there's just, that, that can be
3: years. There can yeah. be. And with the most foundations, people aren't paying those kind of fees when there's a wait list. However, there's still, even if you're having a dog raised for you or you're buying a dog, yeah. there's still a huge shortage. And then how do you know um, the quality of that program? How do you know how the dog's been raised? Right. There have been so many scams and so many people taken advantage of, especially parents. Yeah. Um, this is one where we've seen a lot of scams um, for parents with autistic children that they pay fifteen thousand for a dog and they end up with a dog who attacks their child um, and that's part of why we have our trainer academy is to get qualified ethical trainers out there because there's it's so easy for people to be taken advantage of when they're desperate to find support and help
0: yeah i used to um i had two friends who were quite a lot older than i was when i first started training that used to raise the um dogs for One of the big organizations, and they were always golden retrievers and labradors, and they would bring them Mm -hmm. to my pet dog training classes. And both of them had like three of their own because they had flunked out of the program. And I used to love these dogs because they were actually very nicely trained. They just didn't have the personality. I mean, one of them, Mm Kinsley. This is a dog that if somebody put a tennis ball on the floor, it wouldn't matter what else he was doing, that tennis ball was 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 being grabbed. I mean, he could put like six balls into his mouth. He was one of those <laughs> dogs that could just manipulate the balls into his mouth. And, it, and, it, and I was, that sort of highlighted for me how many of these dogs as well, because they explained that they came to them as puppy raisers, then they went back for kennel training, then they came back to them for sort of supplemental socialization and living and then they went back for their final test when they were sort of two and how many of them at that point dropped out mm-hmm. so you've also got that huge investment being made and many of these dogs are not even graduating they're ending up like kinsley you know mm-hmm. and that's very living as a pet dog
3: that's very true and that's one of the reasons yeah. we're not in a breeding program we're you know looking at trying to do this sort of little pilot to see if there's a way we can right. help some people who can't raise a dog. But one of the things with, I found when doing owner-based training with a private business is the vast majority of dogs are going to essentially, that will not make it through, you're going to find out in the first year. Right. You're going to find out either the dog doesn't have the right temperament or the person doesn't have the necessary skills, the person doesn't have the follow through needed. You're going to find out or the necessary support. Yeah. You're going to learn that typically yeah. in the first year which you spend a lot of time doing. And so part of our client certification program is we work with people once their dog is already 14 months of age mm-hmm. and can essentially pass the CGC level. Right. Right. Because yeah. there are many great resources out there for private and group training for pet dog foundations. That's solved. We don't need yeah. to solve. Yes, yeah. yeah. What there isn't a lot of resource for is for very affordable so we charge $700 for 6 months of private training and certification. Um and with that, you're working with our skilled team facilitators, hands-on, one-on-one, learning how to self-advocate, how to navigate anywhere you need to go in your day-to-day life, um, and all the different disability mitigating tasks you need, and refining your dog's skills in all of those settings. And so that's, that's the kind of thing that a lot of people can't find a trainer to do or couldn't afford to pay a private trainer to do those many, many outings. Um, maybe they're working with a private trainer for example, maybe they're working with one of our Atlas certified trainers to go through and learn a lot of their skills and learn certain areas. And then maybe they'll follow up with our program where we can take them around and go to the gym, to school, to work, right. really refine in all these different settings, ride with them on buses all over town, work with like, how does this dog actually get into your life? Yeah. How do you you know really refine what they do.
0: How accurate are the assessments or is the, what is the process for somebody who's training service dogs what's their process for the selection of a puppy or do they tend to wait until the dog's older or do they just select more puppies than they think they're going to need recognizing that half of them will fall out because of personality
3: with the foundations that's definitely where they're raising more than they place um i know with multiple ones i've we've talked to and worked with Mm. um that that's the norm that you expect about a 50 percent fallout or more wow um and I know especially the programs that work with rescues yeah. are really struggling um, that, and especially if they're in bigger cities, um, for better or for worse, a lot of the bigger cities can afford to take better care of their pets right. and the dogs that are ending up in the shelters are ones with significant behavioral issues. Right. And so then they're transporting dogs from lower income areas and that transport process has proven to be extremely hard on the dogs. And so I've seen some of the organizations that started with only working with rescues now go into a breeding program Mm -hmm. because they've had such a a poor success rate with those dogs, they're not able to serve the clients they want to serve. Mm -hmm. And so in those organizations, yes, you expect a huge fallout. Um,
0: Is, Is there a direct recommendation? So if I was to, or if an individual was to approach you or somebody with your knowledge and experience working in this sort of segment of the industry and said, I now need a service dog, would, in general, would people recommend towards finding a breeding puppy program and doing it that way? Or would they move towards work with a a good dog trainer and rescue or take an older dog that has the right personality? Because in some ways, finding an older dog that has the right personality is easier to then train those skills than working with a puppy for a year and then suddenly finding out the puppy doesn't have the inclination or the personality. Or, Or are there pros and cons for both of those?
2: Yeah, it really yeah. depends on their needs. It really depends on where they're at. It depends on their financial ability. Um, there are I, we we have to look at the individual and we have to look at at the whole picture. Um, it's really hard to just answer a blanket. Yeah. Um, this is this is the road to go. Um, it really really varies.
3: Yeah, and it can be actually finding that adult dog who's you know maybe two to four years old. With a good foundation with that behavioral issues is kind of like finding a needle in the haystack. Right? That's everybody's looking for yeah. that dog. And the dog that's going to be the perfect service dog is a dog that's going to have first pick the shelter. It may be have the dog that when they were brought to the shelter, the person who brought them in put a first choice on them. I volunteer at our local animal shelter and do all of our foster dog training programs. And I've seen dogs that are brought in that, you know, even the police officer who brought them in puts a first choice on them of, hey, if the owner doesn't claim this dog, I want yeah yeah. So
2: let's be
0: honest. I mean, I've worked with rescue for 20 odd years and um, everything from managing the facilities to just working with, um, I now just do fosters with Australian shepherds because that's my breed of choice. and you don't tend to find these lovely, lassie dogs in rescue. I mean, most dogs are there because there was some type of problem. And not suggesting that it's an insurmountable problem, but people don't tend to put, you know, Supreme Cross winners or massively titled obedience dogs into rescue, do they? They just, that's not where they end up.
3: No, and so that's, finding that dog can be very tricky. Um, and then the flip side is, and you're right, with a puppy, yeah. you don't know, I mean, you, you're doing your best to assess And any reasonable breeder or trainer is going to tell you there's still a fair amount of a crapshoot to it. Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm looking. looking I mean, I'm looking at my puppy. My puppy doesn't won't even leave the house if it's warmer than 65 degrees outside. She puts her nose through the door and just goes no, 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 no. Air conditioning. (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine if somebody had chosen her from a selection to train her because her manners are lovely. She's lovely. She's emotionally very secure and stable. But if you were to use her for a service dog, you wouldn't be able to go outside if the weather, if it was outside winter or autumn. Um, right. But you, wouldn't, yeah, and you it's, wouldn't necessarily know that until you were several months into it.
3: And it's so hard to know. It's so hard to yeah. predict. And we do our best to take the mix of looking for, if you're starting with a puppy, you know, doing the research to make sure that you're working with a breeder who really has very careful breeding practices, yeah. very careful health medical test mm-hmm. records, and that have really good early neonatal, like early development programs. Right. So starting with the best that you can start with. And then, yes, then you need to raise them well right? and kind of see how do they develop. And so you're sort of, with that, you're trying to stack your odds of success. But I like to tell people when I'm doing puppy assessments, I'm more finding that I'm looking to see if there's red flags that tell me this dog definitely won't succeed as a service dog. And I'm looking for things or the things that tell me, yeah, they they might have a good chance, but nothing is going to tell me they will. Yeah.
0: What sort of things do you, do you look for or would, if you saw in a puppy, would sort of make you think, hmm, that's maybe a red flag, but this will not be a good assistance dog?
3: Um, fear, right? for one. Insecurity, fear, mm-hmm. um, lack of resilience. Right. Um, oh, or the other extreme, <laughs> like any extreme. <laughs> you want a service dog kind of in the middle, personality-wise. You don't want them to be on one extreme or the other. So also, are they extremely, extremely energetic? um, Kind of too hyper? Are they lethargic? Are they kind of looking at anything you're looking at? How do they problem solve? How do they recover?
0: Yeah, yeah. I had, um, we did a workshop a couple of years ago. It was a scent workshop with Dr. Robert Hewings. And we had this lovely lady that came down. um, I think she was based in Georgia and she brought her um, Rottweiler down. This service dog, absolutely gorgeous. And this dog was adorable and um on day two she was doing some scent games with the dog and the dog was quite stoic and dr robert hewing said do you think maybe if we take the jacket off we'll see a slightly different personality and she said yeah that's a really good idea because it was almost like the dog was lacking in a bit of motivation or a little bit of sort of keenness and oh my god it was like night and day the minute the jacket came off this dog was like a three-month-old puppy just bouncing around this scent equipment and and I, I intellectually I knew that obviously they were on the job at work but until you actually see that because when you see service dogs like that you sort of think that they have a very stoic personality but actually they don't always under all conditions do they often it's just when they're they've got their work uniform on and they're actually working
2: yeah they absolutely know it was funny and yeah. and I we were at a conference a few months ago and we both had our service dogs and um, um, another one of our clients was there who also has her service dog and they were there working all day being the service dogs that they are and at one point we were like okay let's give them a break we took the vests off all at once and poof, they just went and started running and playing it was it was nine days
3: yeah and they need that i think that's the other thing people need to recognize that service dogs are still dogs right they're not robots so they're never going to be perfect And they need breaks and also recognize, especially as we have more and more dogs doing psychiatric work, Mm -hmm. um, that that's emotionally draining on dogs. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that that
0: has got to be emotionally draining for them because any any sentient being that sort of has a, a function with another sentient being where someone's leaning on somebody or needing somebody for support and structure, that has got to be very emotionally tiring. Even if you enjoy it, it's still emotionally tiring, isn't it?
3: It is. And I like to help my client, our clients that have um, psychiatric service dogs think about it the same way as, hey, if you have a mobility dog, they're doing physical tasks, they're exercising, you're going to recognize at some point those muscles are going to get tired and need a break. Right. Well, when they're doing psychiatric service, it's the same thing, except they almost never get to be off. Right. Especially if you're having a bad day or depending on the person's condition. So it's, Recognizing, hey, that's still a muscle being worked and it's it's an emotion being worked and it's critical to support them. And so that's another thing to recognize Mm -hmm. um, when you're working with dogs of do they have that temperament resilience, especially if you're going to have them doing psychiatric support or medical um, support and really making sure how are you supporting that dog at the same time?
0: And on your website, under the train your dog category, you've got two programs. One's the team set in motion that we spoke about earlier. And then there's another one called assistance dog set in motion. What's the key difference between the two
2: programs? Molly, do you wanna answer that one? Yeah, so the assistance dog set in motion um, is what um Jen mentioned earlier about um how we're raising the puppies until they're a year old um and so that's recognizing that not everyone can start with a puppy but kind of our solution of Mm -hmm. owner trainers could start with a slightly older dog and then the team set in motion um supporting people whether they're um you know service dog in training or just pet dog um, owners who just want to get that really good foundation Okay. And that is, it's important to note that our Team Set in Motion um, program, so online training course, but it's not a service dog training by any means. It's really giving that really good foundation right. um, that any dog and person can benefit from. Yep. Um, but it's, we're not training service dogs through that. Okay.
3: So- right. The intent would be after that, they could then start our regular client certification program. Yeah. If hey. they choose
1: to
0: you've worked with assistance dogs haven't you judy
1: i have yeah quite a few yeah yeah so i've got some thoughts that i've seen when i was in the industry at facility bred dogs or with facility bred dogs what i often see is that these dogs go to puppy raisers for however many months to a year then they bring them back and they throw them in a kennel so that close connection they had with people now they're in jail i mean That's what it's literally like. Your social interaction has changed with the people you bonded with. And I think that's extremely hard on a dog. And a a lot of these places have some really good volunteers, but in the cases I worked with, they weren't living with those volunteers 24 hours a day. Honestly, Judy,
0: when I mentioned that bit earlier, and I I do want you to continue on with that train of thought, but when I mentioned that bit earlier about the two puppy raisers I knew, where they raised them from puppies, sent them to boot camp and got them back, and even back then, I thought, well, that must be very hard on a dog that's raised in emotionally. Home environment, Can't 24 yeah. 7 with somebody. And then suddenly, that, you know, because that for me would be like taking right. my pet dog and putting on a boarding candle. I mean, I wouldn't do it anyway.
1: Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and you know, that kind of even goes back to shelter dogs, right? Yeah. Any dog that walks into a shelter, it could be living in paradise yeah. and something happened and they go to the shelter and they're relinquished. And the noise two and hours, the smells and all yes. the
0: stimuli. Yeah. And
1: two hours later, somebody yeah. goes and adopts them and takes them back to paradise. That, those two hours that they were in that shelter has caused some emotional trauma to that dog. Yeah. So then we go, you know, so we're, we're taking these dogs from a beautiful home into, you know, basically kennel runs and being worked and put back in the kennel runs. It takes a pretty strong dog to be able to handle that emotional aspect of it. And I think that's why we're seeing so many failures in the service dog industry. I'm not think that, saying think that's part weird. of it.
3: Um, yeah, I think I know. It's, also it's not
1: just, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I know
3: it's definitely, I've heard and I've talked to people in those organizations talk about, yeah, the, the resilience the dogs need to have to kind of be in that kennel kind of environment, but that that's not good for all of right. them. I will also say right. it's yeah. these standards yeah. are very high. And so, especially mm-hmm. in the guide dogs. The kind of things a dog could be failed for could be they won't um, poop on cue on concrete next to their person. Um, or they could be ball-driven, like you said. Um, it could be one that's a really important criteria to check on puppies for future guide dog or mobility work is sensitivity to any kind of equipment or touch or things on their back. Um, that kind of body sensitivity is a huge factor for guide dogs um, yeah. and mobility dogs for having them not succeed in the program. So there's so many... Right.
1: There's different, so many very, things, yeah, and each yeah. individual dog is different, right, so there's no, you can't set a rule and say this, this, and this needs to be on the checklist because what would be on a checklist for me if I was a dog would be different than if Nikki had that same checklist or, you know, either one yeah. of you. It's yeah. There's no consistency, so everything is an individual or every dog is an individual.
3: And I would say there's a, you could have a foundation of you need to make sure you've met these different mm-hmm. things. But then, yeah, what they are for a different dog, what's motivating for a different dog, what's a recovery for a different dog yeah. is going to be visual. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is really neat about our both our client program and our trainer program is we're really helping people learn how to read the dogs well, and we're letting, learning, teaching them how to read the people well. It's something that as dog trainers, there's plenty of cases where we could read the smallest little thing on a dog that's telling us they're getting stressed, they're starting to get flooded, but meanwhile, we may be completely missing how much we're flooding that human.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right.
3: Yeah, and so that's something we really emphasize in our trainer academy, is how to really understand and read people and to recognize how to work with them ethically and that we wouldn't right. want to do something to them that we wouldn't do to their dog. Right. Um, right. And to take that into account and really meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, um, our trainer academy actually could be pretty applicable to people who aren't necessarily wanting to become service dog trainers, but maybe working with pet clients who have disabilities. Because that's one of the things to kind of, I think both as trainers, it can be easy to forget, hey, there can be plenty of trainers who have disabilities, invisible or visible. Mm -hmm. And there can be plenty of clients that you may be working with or missing out on working with who have invisible or um, visible disabilities. And And so really opening your mind to ways to respect people and how to work with them and not see their disability as a crutch, but just a part of them.
1: And that's even good information uh, for people without disabilities, for the people that we train anyway, we should all be more aware of that. So I I see how that course would be beneficial, whether you're training service dogs, are training people to train their service dogs, are training pet dogs. It's... It's critically important information that I don't think that we see a lot of training for trainers on that. On that no,
3: topic. I know that, that in all of the different certifications and, por- and programs I've gone through, obviously there's a focus on how to work with people and how to kind of manage lessons and how to try to have them be successful, but really how to read them carefully right. and how to really listen the kind of questions to ask. And when you're working with people with disabilities, you are kind of to Nikki Spinelli, you are constantly adapting what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's a if you're somebody who likes to think on your feet and be constantly challenged and self solve puzzles, service dog training is a, a fun thing. Um, because it's always different. Um, but it's you have to really be willing to suspend your assumptions um, and recognize where your own assumptions could be ableist and could get in your way of helping somebody.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's when, when we started the, um, the division with PPG and Peggy called me, and I, I guess I'd never really sat and thought about how difficult, not only just how difficult it is for owners who need service dogs, but then I started thinking about all the, thing, all the sort of supplemental skills that a good dog trainer would need to work with an owner-handler team. Because there are, there is a lot of speciality knowledge, isn't there? Especially in accommodating modifiers for particular exercises. So it really is sort of a whole different type of training, isn't it, for want of a better word?
3: I think it is. And I think there's also recognizing, helping see that people may come in with an idea of what they want their dog to do for them mm-hmm. that either is completely impractical for the dog or really not necessary that there may be very simple other means that accomplish the same thing for them, either with technology or environment changes that they don't need to train their dog to do. Um, And so that's one of the things is to really help people step back and go, okay, what is it that you're actually trying to solve, rather than jumping straight to an implementation? Like, hey, let's step back, and then let's look at your dog. You've decided you really want a nose alert, but your dog really likes using their paws. How about we do a paw alert instead? you know, is it really practical for your chihuahua to be carrying this heavy thing? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's really helping people step back and realizing what is worth training. Right. What may not need to be trained. Yeah. Um, and different solutions is an important part of that. And yeah. so I think that's a that's an important skill. While at the same time, asking a lot of questions. I've learned the hard way um, working with private clients over time of... What, you know, if I'm working with a trainer or a client and they say, oh yeah, there's a dog park that's, you know, five blocks from me, you know, that I may be assuming, oh, it's easy for them to go get their dog exercise. I didn't, I failed to ask, yes, but are you actually able to drive? Because no, the medication you're on to deal with your condition means you can't drive. Right. So that even though there's a park nearby, you can't use it safely. So it's things like that, that, you know, there's just simple assumptions we can make. Um, I remember one time training a dog to just offer, they were just, it was in a laying position to offer their paws and laying down for nail trims and they would just lay there and or do a roll and lay there and then thinking about it, realizing but the client can't get on the ground. So I really need to train the dog to stand yeah. Yeah. and offer paws, um, standing. So just things yeah. that you take for granted, you don't think about, um, that are easy to make assumptions on.
0: As a result of COVID, and I'll just like a bit of preamble. I was in the UK about four weeks ago. I had to go there, um, a family problem. And I was very careful during the two years of COVID and was fortunate enough that because I lived on land, I was able to sort of lock myself down and not go anywhere, but still, you know, adequately exercise and walk my dog. And when I went to the UK, having not really been around a lot of people, I felt overwhelmed by the stimulus of London. Just getting in a train station was like, whoa and it reminded me of about 5 years ago when i went to new york for a weekend and being in times square with all those lights and noises mm. yeah and i remember thinking to myself my god it's going to take a while until i get used to this again having been inside locked down for so long but are you seeing problems with service staff that as a result of covid didn't go out and about for a long time and sort of now maybe need to be reintroduced to socialization i mean is that 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 is that having a negative impact or a, is that creating challenges for handlers because dogs that were once very comfortable and confident out and about are now maybe a little bit more hesitant
2: yeah we've seen difficulties with honestly most of our clients um, and the all of the dogs have struggled um, most of it being with the socialization aspect and getting overexcited um, with greetings and other people and other dogs, that's really been the main challenge. Um, another aspect of it has been that some of our clients are um, immunocompromised and they really haven't been able to go out at all and for their mm-hmm. their safety, have yeah. it's been a really big challenge for yeah. them to go yeah. out and practice. Yeah. So some of, um, especially for our clients who were still in training and, um, you know really needed um, some more support weren't able to practice in the same way and we had to be um, really creative in how we were working with them but um, there was definitely Definitely more challenges over the it's, past it's two years. It's almost
0: the opposite, isn't it? Because a lot of pet dog trainers are saying that they're dealing with a lot of pets that are, are now having a, a separation issues because for so long they had people around them. But mm-hmm. for the service dogs, it's almost the opposite. It's for service dogs that were not going out and about that now have to go out and about, and they're struggling because they're not used to it.
3: Right, they're here, as Molly said, overexcited, because like yeah. oh my gosh, people and dogs. Yeah. You've missed all of this, or yeah. they're nervous and stressed with the right. noises, yeah. overwhelming the yeah. environment, or both. And the people are the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And I don't, I mean, when I look at, you know, how we responded state by state here versus like the UK, I mean, and like Louise Lefferton Frappel, who's one of our colleagues, Judy and I, I mean, in, she was in Spain. And for several weeks, they were not allowed to go further than 10 feet outside their houses. So, like yeah. her dog, Django, was literally getting, fortunately, she had like half an acre or an acre. So they were still able to do agility, but he wasn't able to go out and about. I mean, that must be very difficult for the dogs. And like Molly mentioned, people that uh, were sort of compromised with their immune system that wouldn't have wanted to have gone out anyway because of COVID. And
3: now, you still can't. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, still can't. Um, yeah. Right. I work yeah. with a client locally who it's just, you know, their world is so small now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just too dangerous for them.
2: And I know, like, right now, there's, I mean, I know for a lot of guide dogs, I had, I had heard that a lot of guide dogs had to be retired way earlier than they were supposed to, because, you know, on our side, for a lot of mm-hmm. owner trainers, depending on the disability, retraining is possible, but for guide dogs, not necessarily. Uh, it's not necessarily possible, and the the owners can't necessarily do the retraining. Um, so a lot of guide dog handlers had to retire their dogs, unfortunately, and it was really, really sad.
0: Wow, that is. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was interesting because I, I guess I, I, I thought that there would potentially be problems, but I thought the problems would be more around sort of hustle and bustle, noises, navigation. It didn't occur to me that the problems would be around just the excitement of seeing other people and dogs, because again, you tend to think about service dogs as being a bit functional rather than being what they are which is an emotional animal that has all the same needs and emotional needs that we all have yeah yeah
2: the one the one thing initially initially i really kind of enjoyed it because i have my service dog and initially it was like oh great for once people aren't coming up to me and Mm -hmm. wanting to pet my dog Perfect. Um, but yeah, two years later, it's yeah. we see the effects.
3: Yeah, yeah for people that have a lot of social anxiety or who really wanted um, right. to make sure there was a bubble around them, it was really a wonderful time.
1: It was actually yeah. kind of funny. <laughs> One of
3: the skills that yeah. we train um, is to have a dog create a buffer around a person. Mm-hmm. They'll alert them if somebody walks within about six feet. Right. Um, this can be for a hearing alert. In this case, that was what I was doing with this yeah. dog for someone who had no peripheral Sound recognition, um, but it's also really helpful for people with PTS. Yeah. But as we were out trying to practice during the height of COVID, nobody would come within six feet. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, and trying to generalize that behavior away from an individual helper was actually really challenging.
0: Molly, what do you recommend? Because we ha- we hear this all the time. It seems to be one of the most sort of irritating problems with when somebody's working with a service dog is the fact that the general public seems to be very ignorant or naive or I don't know what the right word is in terms of not petting these dogs that, um, you know, I mean, and I know, I know with my dog, I mean, I, I I run with my dog and walk with her and a day doesn't go by that I have to tell somebody, no, please don't let your children charge at my dog.
3: Mm-hmm. And my dog's
0: not a service dog, but I can't imagine how difficult that must be when you're constantly having to tell people, stop, go away, you can't pet my dog, it's, uh, it's working, is it, I mean, is it still as frequent now and as complicated it's, now as it was? By I the mean,
2: it, it's it, honestly daily. Yeah. It's, it's almost every time I go out with my dog and it's for some weird reason, it almost happens more when he has his vest on than when I'm just taking him on a casual walk. I, mean, I don't it's know why. isn't it?
0: Because people mm-hmm. talk all the time and suddenly, so oh, there's a service dog. And they have this sort of Yeah, like, it's like, like, like this, it's this, around, this
2: yeah. mystical thing that yeah. people are really curious yeah. Yeah. about. Um yeah. And I think especially for, like, I have a seizure disorder. That's why I have my my service dog. And so someone like me, I look young and healthy and quote-unquote normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't really understand why someone like me would have a service dog. So there are a lot of questions. There's a lot of misunderstanding. People don't, you know, oftentimes people think that I'm a trainer training my dog for someone else. Yeah. So I get questions like, Oh, like are you training a guide dog? Like, oh, what are you mm-hmm. training him for? And kind of this assumption that I am a trainer. So I mean, recommendations in terms of if anyone else is in kind of for other service dog handlers, it's it's a lot of practice mm-hmm. to just kind of practice saying no. And it's really
3: you, uncomfortable. You have, like, at
2: first,
0: like a little elevator speech that you
3: give we people. Do, Honestly, no, yes. We have two different variants of cards yeah. we give our clients. One that's kind of like a tag point yeah. that um, is great with kids, that has actually a little Lily Chen drawing on it. Yeah. That's a cartoon that's like, Thank you for helping yeah. me train my dog, or Thank you for helping Bye. me and my dog work. That if a child or yeah. somebody's coming up, it's like, yeah. Here, have this, go be distracted by the shiny thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have a different one that has more about ADA rights and policies that they can hand out for information. Um, but it's a lot of it's role funny. play of practice with people. And It's something people should really think about when they're thinking about the type of dog they have. If you have, you know, a fluffy golden or a doodle or a dog that stands out, I've known um, one handler who has a Merle Collie, who just, that dog is so stunning that they get so much attention. And so really thinking about, you know, not having a dog, if not thinking about what does your dog look like? And is your dog themselves going to attract a lot of attention? Um, and you mentioned, like, a chihuahua as yeah. a service dog. Yeah. They can be. They can be perfect for, for sure. medical alerts. Yeah. Um, however, you're also looking then what is the bias, sort of the hidden societal bias, if they're assuming all service dogs are medium right. or larger dogs. That's right.
0: And, and that was exactly what Dawn said to me. She said, you know, it's great to have the chihuahua because people aren't constantly in your face wanting mm-hmm. to stroke the dog because she used to carry the dog. Or, you know, or it'd been a little backpack. But then the inverse of that is that she used to struggle taking it into restaurants and stores because, well, it's not, that can't be a service dog.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, no one says a service dog has to be yellow. I mean, right? Not, you know.
3: And so there's I, that's a thing that, and also recognizing, like, with pit bulls. Pit bulls are wonderful dogs. Yeah. They can make wonderful service dogs. Yeah. But yeah. you need to think as a client. What do you want to take on of additional challenges that they are protected on, say, airlines that don't allow pit bulls otherwise? They are allowed. Mm -hmm. They are protected. But how much battle do you want to take on fighting your right to be there with your dog? Um, And that's not to say that that may not be worth it. But just recognizing that is an additional challenge, depending on where you live and the bias in your city or where you're going, that you might want to think about what breed um, that'll impact your homeowner insurance, possibly. Um, it could impact your pet insurance rates. I always encourage everybody to have pet insurance. Um, so just thinking about that of, you know, what kind of dog and what are perceptions? Because people with small dogs struggle a lot more to be taken seriously.
1: You know, I, I met him, be a
3: really viable
1: option. I met a, a man not long ago, maybe last summer, and um, he had a gray pit bull beautiful blue dog. And he put, male dog, he put a pink collar with rose flowers on it. And he had a beautiful cartoon drawing of this dog and he put him on stickers. So if a child came up, he would say, I'm so sorry, he's working, you can't pet him. But here, he has a sticker for you. And the sticker was adorable. It had some little thing like, hi, I'm Rodin the service dog. You can visit me at his Instagram. And, or whatever the dog's name was. And it really helped educate, mm-hmm. but also right. the kids weren't as needing to pet or people weren't yeah. wanting to pet him as much yeah. when they were handing, when he was handing yeah. him something. Yeah. And that, that was kind was of an the amazing of dog. Tag point cards mm-hmm. that we have. Yeah.
3: That are like, yeah. And, you know, some people are perfectly happy to have their dog pet, depending right. on what what the dog's um, there for. What their dog's there what for. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, it's, Something that that social exposure is important for the dogs too. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: So it's always important to ask. One thing that I've loved lately is how many young children are educating their parents? I've seen this at mm-hmm. stores, at airports, that the adult, they'll be walking by and the adults will be like, oh, a neat looking dog in the child's like, no, 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 don't distract them, mom, they're working. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's happened It's awesome when that happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
3: unfortunately, there's also, you know, other ones of the people that come up and say, I know I shouldn't. No no, I know. I know. I not Yeah. Or, or, or the yeah. people
2: who will like go into the dog's face and be like, "You're working right now. I can't pet you." It's like, yeah. but <laughs> you're still distracting him. But, but, but <laughs> even,
0: with, even with pet dogs, I was out walking a few weeks ago, and there's a lady in our area that walks with um one of those double buggies that has t- that the twins are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And um one day she started veering over, and I just and oh. I said, "Oh, don't worry," I said. Um, Doogie doesn't need to say hello. You know, that's my polite way of saying, go away. My dog doesn't need to say hello. <laughs> you know? And she sort of went, okay. And then, she, and then and the, and the twins were like screaming because they get into this really like high-pitched giggle when they see Doogie. And Doogie's immediately like, oh my God, what is that? Clearly <laughs> an uncomfortable noise. And I said, yeah, my dog's not really comfortable. I don't think it's a good idea. And then I'm thinking, because my dog's nose is at the sort of level of the children's faces in this buggy. And the next minute, I see these two German shepherds gone walking down the road with a handler. And the, all of them just like straight into each other. And I, I said to my husband, we have to get out of here as quickly as possible. My nurse can't <laughs> handle this. Because I just, I can't handle this, watching those interactions go down. Because you just know it's just not the right thing to happen. So even with normal pet dogs, there's this, it's almost like we don't have to have any consent at all. Because they're a dog, it's open game.
2: Yeah.
0: We can just run and grab it. Yeah. I don't know. Where where in society did that come? I mean, Ricky Gervais, who I just love to bits as a British comedian, Mm -hmm. he says, he goes, it's awful. He said, but if I'm out and about and someone's with a dog, he said, there's there's no way they're telling me I'm not stroking that dog. I love dogs. I saw (laughs) that. I heard him say that. And he he, he says, I don't have one, but I love them. He said, and that's why there was a dog in his most successful three seasons of whatever it was called. He just loves them. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, that, is that we all sort of laugh and we go, ho, ho, ho. But that actually is so wrong, isn't it? The assumption mm-hmm. that you can just. I,
1: I had a friend who was a kindergarten teacher, and this was her solution. She had a Border Collie that was really intense and loved people. But if someone went to pet her, she would jump on him. So she tried the whole, you know, please, she's in training or she, whatever. Here's what she worked, what worked for her. She'd say, oh, please don't touch my dog. She's contagious. Uh-huh. What was she yeah. contagious with? I mean, who knows? Nothing. But yeah. it was yeah. enough that people would say, oh, okay. And yeah. they'd step away. Yeah. And it was hilarious because, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What's she going to do? It you is. Know, it she's hard. And I, can't, <laughs> and I can not Honestly, Molly, I
0: mean, I don't know. And I'm not a rude person. And I try to always be very civil when I'm interacting with people. But there's been occasions <laughs> where I've just gone, stop. Because you've asked them four <laughs> times, please don't come any closer. And they just keep coming. It's like, stop. Thank you. I'm leaving now. Please don't follow me. I mean, you you almost have to be rude to sort of make them go, oh, shoot, what am I doing? I shouldn't be doing this.
2: Yeah, you really do. Have some and I'm, I'm also not a rude person most of the time. Um, and I try to keep things really civil. And oftentimes I try to educate people when I have the energy too. And sometimes I just don't. And most of the times I'm just like, please don't pet my dog. He's working. And oftentimes people are like, oh, okay, sorry. And sometimes I'm like, oh, he's working really? It's like, yes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just walk away, put the earbuds in, pretend you don't hear them. um, And that's all you can do because you weren't going to get it. I had a
0: friend in the UK that was in a big shopping center doing some um, training with her dog. And a woman got aggressive and violent because she said, please don't touch my dog. And she said, well, how dare you tell me that? I want to I mean, it's just that it was just so far mm. beyond being unreasonable, and you just think, my goodness, mm. it's hard enough without having to get into these types of fracas. And yeah, things.
3: I've experienced that more oh. than once in pet stores, um, working with our clients, yeah. where there's someone in the pet store yeah. that's determined, I want to pet that dog. Yeah, yeah. and then they'll like it's... literally, even if you say no, then they'll kind of sneak by and try. Right. to <laughs> Yeah, they get like, they get like stealth, <laughs> don't they? They're,
1: they're, they're Watch on mission. Me. They're on a yeah. mission. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think oh, yeah. especially for service dog handlers, and especially for people um, who deal with social anxiety or PTSD, it it really takes a lot of practice. And uh, as you had mentioned earlier, yeah. just an elevator speech, because it can be so hard to feel like you're saying no to people and to deal with those with those people um, who are coming up to you. So it's yeah. it just adds that extra layer layer of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just it's practice, practice, right. practice. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's Definitely. one of the things we'll do with our clients. I remember doing that with one client. It was like, okay, you're just gonna practice saying this to your husband. Mm-hmm. That it was even difficult for her to say, no, please don't pet my dog to her husband. Mm-hmm. Just that felt so Yeah. Yeah. Full of conflict. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, we're just gonna practice you getting these words out to people that are safe. Right. Right. And then slowly build these vocabularies. Uh,
0: especially um, if, especially if you're sort of an introverted person and you're not the kind of person that mm-hmm. I mean, most people don't like confrontation or conflict. And then you're almost being forced into a situation where you are then perceived as being the bad person because you're stopping somebody else's fun. I mean, it's just, it's a really unfair situation to put somebody in that, apart from everything else that's wrong about it. It's just really unfair, isn't
3: it? It is hard. And it's hard. I think that's something that people don't necessarily think about and they think about. And it's something we try to educate of, is a service dog right for you? Mm -hmm. That to recognize a service dog is a giant, fluffy neon sign that per societal terms, there's something wrong with you. And it's going to attract attention to you. And they're going to take also, you know, the quick run in the store that was five minutes is now going to take you 20 or 30 by the time you get them leashed up and they go potty and you go in and you find out where you're going, you get settled, you get the stuff, you get out, right? right. Everything takes longer. Yeah, Everything is more work and it draws attention. And for people who may already have a severe social sense of social anxiety and feel like I shouldn't take up any place in the world, right? you use a lot more physical space with the dog. And so it's really something for think people to think about. For some people with invisible disabilities, they actually really like that yeah. because it's sort of like, hey, I don't have to tell somebody there's something going on with me. They can see I have a dog and so they can assume. Yeah. So some people say that's really relieving, yeah. but for others, it just pull it draws attention in. Um, and so that's really something for people to think about the, you know, when someone says to us, oh, you're so lucky you have a service dog and you can take them with you everywhere you go. Like, do you know how much work that is?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that, yeah. I, I can vouch for that. When I had service dogs in training and they were ready to graduate at times, so they didn't need a lot of, you know, direction, so to speak. I'd run into Costco, and like you said, it would be five minutes for me to run in, grab the water, and leave. But with a dog, Mm -hmm. you're having to be so cautious about where do you push that cart, where are the dog's feet, who is down that aisle. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many things that my trip now is, you know, 30 minutes when it should have been five. So it, it does take a lot of work.
0: Handle with your dogs, Judy, when you take them out for walks. How do you handle it when somebody wants to? Because you you have a cute looking dog. When somebody wants to sort of thrust themselves into your dog's face,
1: well, or, you know what's your elevator speech. Annie that generally comes no. to our meetings, yeah. If you if someone sees her and doesn't pet her, she's devastated. She's almost just destroyed for the rest of the day. So I try to walk them very early in the morning in an area where there aren't a lot of people. And then we go to Starbucks, we sit at the table. She sits on a chair, actually. She's done that since she's been a baby because there's so much junk on the ground. And people will come and pet her.
0: get his paws dirty.
1: (laughs) Oh my, no, no, it's the the junk people drop that, that, that they might eat when they're babies, right? So now she thinks she's supposed to sit on that chair and people will come and ask, may I pet her? The kids yeah. are the ones that ask the most yeah. though. You're right on that. But that satisfies her. So when we're on walks, we can just kind of yeah. avoid it.
0: No, I was just laughing because yesterday my husband walked out to the mailbox without wearing any shoes. And when he came back, I said, are you taking those big dirty feet of yours into our, into my house now? <laughs> and, and he looked at the dog. he goes, she has four dirty feet. I'm like, yeah, but she's different. And-
1: And usually she's mud from head to toe, right?
0: She's my dog. She does whatever she wants. That's right.
1: Her dirty feet are okay, yours aren't.
0: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Poor Rick.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. All right, well, wow, this is, what a great conversation. We'll have to get you guys back because there's always so much to explore. I was hoping that we
2: could sort of talk about the three different categories, but maybe we can do that next time.
3: So, oh, you uh, mean with service, emotional yeah, support, and therapy? Yeah,
2: yeah I realized that yeah. I actually, um, when you asked me earlier, I don't think I answered when you, you well, said three okay. different categories, yeah. and you meant ESA and therapy, and I went yeah. on guide dog and
3: hearing. Dog. Yeah, so I apologize right. That. Oh, yeah. No, no but, but no, that,
1: that was good. Kind of yeah. Assistance Dog International
3: yeah. classifies that as yeah. assistance dog, service yeah. dog, and hearing dogs. Well, right.
1: and, and on,
0: and our, on our PPG website, under our assistance animal division, one of the, the actually not one of the, the first tasks that Peggy and the team wanted to do was to develop a flyer that talks about the differences and what accesses different type, categories of dogs mm-hmm. have. So I'm just going to run through it really quickly because I think it is, I mean, I, just seems to be one of those messages that however often you say it, it's not often enough. It's not enough. Yeah. So in the U.S., and we've actually, for anyone listening to either this or the podcast, we've actually just created the U.K. version for this as well, which will be going up on the website today or tomorrow. So, and I think there are three categories in the U.K., but they have slightly different access. Anyway, I, I digress. So in the U.S., there are three categories for animals that assist humans. There are service dogs, which is specialty-trained dogs, and miniature horses and other animals that um, do d- different kinds of work or tasks for their disabled handlers to help them lead more independent and normal lives. And I'm paraphrasing here. Then there's emotional support animals. This group of animals are considered pets that can be used by people with disabilities who can benefit from having an animal as a companion. And then there's therapy animals. Animals that in hospitals, libraries, nursing homes, schools, etc. Therapy animals accompany their owners on trips to the facilities to bring pleasure to the people that are there. So, um, Yeah, so that's the three different categories. And I think one of the reasons why we have so many problems with people approaching service animals is because there are lots of folks out there with animals that are not service animals but are wearing service vests. And so therefore, there probably is not a consistent reaction from the handlers. So therefore, Mm. if you've met a handler who's got a dog with a service coat on that's not a service animal, maybe it's a therapy dog or emotional assistance or just a pet dog that's wearing the wrong jacket, and the owner goes, sure, come on in. You probably then are going to apply that same expectation to any other animals that you see in those service jackets. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the golden rule is, well, you tell me the golden rule. How would you paraphrase it? If it's a service animal, do not approach. Just allow the animal to go about its business. And if you mm-hmm. do ask for permission and you're told no, be polite and courteous about it and move on. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before before we have to go to de- death com threat number two, which is stop. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the one after that is a little bit more um stop now. Yeah. <laughs>
2: right? I mean, now my, dog <laughs> is, uh, my dog is contagious.
0: Yeah. Yes, my dog yeah. is contagious. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Jennifer Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, just tell us how people can find you, website, Facebook page, wh- whatever else you are on from social media perspective. So that and we'll put all the details in the
2: Um, so website as you mentioned at the beginning um atlasdog.org and uh we have a facebook page uh we have an instagram um a twitter a youtube page um what else a linkedin
3: um yeah that's a that's about it you can contact us at info at atlasdog.org um Mm -hmm. or find us through the website
0: yeah atlasdog.org Perfect. Or the PPPG if- website, homepage, PPPG yeah. website. Scroll down. Their logo's there as well with a direct link to the website. So wonderful. All right, ladies, lovely. It's been great chatting mm-hmm. to you. Come back in a couple of months, two or three months and absolutely tell us, tell us more that. about what you're doing yeah. and all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so
2: much okay. for having us.
0: All right. You're mm-hmm. very welcome. Thank all you.
3: Have a lovely weekend.
1: <laughs> oh, you- bye. Bye.
3: Bye.